Acts chapter 19, if you would take your Bibles, please, and open them as we continue on in our series. Lord willing, we'll be concluding by the end of this month. That's the schedule. We're going to pick up the pace a little bit. It is great to be back with each of you um, this week after last week, having the opportunity, the privilege of speaking over at the Commonplace. Um, I do have to give the nod to the Commonplace when it comes to the coffee. They actually outdo us by way of the coffee. Um, other than that, it was, it was a delight to meet this week with all of the pastors together to kind of compare notes and that uh, we are thankful for a single message that went out within the community. And Nathan was so appreciative of your hospitality. He regrets the fact that Charity, his wife, was not able to be here, but he sends his regards. And um, I have been working all week on my Irish brogue. <laughs> and it's not going to happen. Just to let you know, someone, Nathan did tell me, he said, I met somebody at your church. He came up to me afterward and he said, our family's from Scotland. He, tell, he said, I can tell a good Scottish accent any day of the week. And of course, Nathan was trying to say, no, I'm not from Scotland. I'm from Ireland. But either way, they still thought that he had a wonderful Scottish brogue, but he really did not. <clears throat> Interesting um, that Scott Garman and Ben Linz, uh, both went to the same school. They both have a beard. Scott's beard is a little bit lighter uh, than Ben's. And Ben ended up in Scott's pulpit. And there were some people in the back, some older folks, and they couldn't see real well. And they thought they were commenting to one another. It was overheard. Boy, Pastor Scott's beard has really filled in very, very quickly. Of course, Ben has this big, full red beard. But um, other than that, it was great to just comment First and foremost, that we believe that God was glorified and that this community, as we are together collectively, corporately praying alongside of other churches that are preaching the gospel, that this community would be transformed, not through one church, but through several churches that are resting solely upon this word, this gospel right here, the word of God. And so we're thankful for that. We believe that our goal was accomplished um, in doing that. So we give all the glory to the Lord. Um, lots just moving, swirling through all of our heads after Thanksgiving and what has taken place and what did we do and uh, what did we eat and what have we been celebrating and why have we been celebrating that in light of this text. And I appreciate the Holy Spirit's aligning these thoughts for us this morning. But before we go any further, let's ask for God's help as we approach the throne of grace and uh, give glory to the Lord through our learning of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, once again, I am so grateful to be in your house, and we thank you, Lord. I thank you for each person that is here, each home that is represented, Lord, and what you have called us, not only to be reminded of this morning, but collect our thoughts and, Lord, allow our minds to be led by your Spirit to accomplish a single goal, and that is to bring glory to the name of Jesus. Father, there is so much focus on ourselves, on on comforting ourselves. Father, we would ask, Lord, that we would be able to redirect that to you. Be grateful for what you have done. Father, I I pray for this community that is is really ensnared in, in darkness. God, I would ask that we would have opportunity to speak into many situations. 
with the light and the truth and the power of the transforming gospel. God, I thank you, Lord, for just the incredible blessings that you have just lavishly bestowed upon us that we do not deserve. And we, Lord, just pause and in quietness and solemnness express that gratitude to you. And most of all, we thank you for loving us and forgiving us of our sin and making a means of payment on the cross for our sins. And Father, we understand that truth, we acknowledge that, and we, we, Lord, invite your spirit to work amongst us and through us. We ask, Lord, that you would guide our time, guard my, my words. May not one word come out of my mouth that does not bring glory to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen. And amen. There are a list. The list is long of what we can pause and give thanks to the Lord for. I'm sure that you've been talking about them. I trust that you've been talking about them. And I made a, a brief list of just the freedom that we have to meet even in this fashion and the blessing many of you who traveled to be with family or I see college students home Together with family, we think of, of the friendships that we enjoy and the food that we ate, the abundance of the food that we eat that puts us in the wealthiest of any culture that has ever existed in the history of the world. We have, we have so much to be thankful for. Even, even driving to see family, we think about how, how easy it is for us to travel today and how comfortable and how safe and quick and the blessings of technology to connect families that perhaps physically have not been able to be there, but we can connect and we can enjoy the blessings of technology and education that God has blessed us with and the opportunities that education affords us. And the list of our own comforts today and conveniences and the closeness and the warmthness that we enjoy. We think of all of the things that we could just pause and say, Lord, we thank you so much. And yet on top of all of those things, there's this, this one, what, there's, there's the greatest reminder of anything that we're to be thankful for. And that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of it like this, that in our blindness, literally we were, we were blind, that in our blindness... God gave us sight to recognize and see our own what? Our wickedness, our depravity, our sinfulness. In our lameness, God, in a sense, gave us the strength to walk in the newness of life. In our lostness, he picks us up and he guides us and he directs every single step of our way. We have so many things to pause to give thanks for. It says in God's word that we are to give thanks in everything. And yet we live in this culture where it seems that we come headlong into a collision of, of, of it being more about us. And I was reminded of it this week as I, I saw a quote. It says, Black Friday, which is, of course, now this day after it's actually creeped into the day of Thanksgiving. It said, Black Friday, because only in America people trample other people for sales exactly one day after being thankful for what we already have. Think about this whole premise. I read an article just yesterday from USA Today. A gentleman by the name of Steve Gimbrel, who actually comes from our own Gettysburg College, he actually writes and he says, Thanksgiving is un-American. Thanksgiving is obsolete. Thanksgiving needs to be eliminated. Listen to this. In our culture, we tell our children that it is okay to be pleased with what you have done, but never be satisfied. 
You need to keep your eye on the prize. Do not rest content with what you have. Do not be content is to stop moving forward. To stop moving forward is to quit. And winners never quit. Only losers are content. And contentment with what you have is the basis of our thankfulness. And he says, really, we have to think about changing the word thanksgiving into thanksgiving. So what happens is we live in this culture that we are reminded through God's word and everything give thanks. And there's so much. And yet we come what we, we crash into. This idea of it's about you, it's about you, it's about you, it's about you. We literally collide with our culture. I saw on Black Friday a sale, a huge sale for uh, cars that were being sold in this wonderful deal. And it had music and it had the balloons. And it was a used, a slightly used Buick. And, and, and the advertisement was, it was $19,000. But today only. It was $18,990. They're actually promoting, like, is, is this just, a, is this just really weird? Is this weird around us? And yet we are called to live in this culture. And if I recall, we have set out as a church to have a very clear vision on what we're doing and why we're doing it. We build relationships with other people to make disciples. So that lives and families and the community, the entire community is transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Community is transformed. It means the community is changed. Why? Because lives are changed. I want you to think when we come, when we come face to face with a true awakening of the depth of the message and the meaning of Christ's atoning work on the cross... When we think about what Jesus Christ did at Calvary for me and for you, it affects virtually every single area of our life. Literally, it changes the lenses to which we look out into life. It affects our homes and our families, our community. even affects our economy and how we spend our money and where we spend our money. We actually see this exact thing happen in our text in Acts chapter 19. Because Christians were coming what? In, 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 a, in a collision course with their culture, there's an upheaval. There's actually, get this, there's actually a riot that takes place. Because Christians are living lives in such a way that it literally transforms the culture. Now please understand that, that Christians don't cause the riot. Christians are not even in the riots. But because there's Christians living different lives, there is a riot. There's a wonderfully prophetic Catholic novelist. His name is Flannery O'Connell. And he rightly warns us that you must push back against the age as hard as it is pressing you. Think about this. We are not to just kind of be swallowed up and just, just flow down the stream with everyone else. That's not the life of what it means to be a Christian. Churches are filled with believers and churches are called what? To transform. If we're not transforming our community, then, 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 then in all honesty, we're not a church. If the church does not transform the community, it becomes a club. It becomes a monument. 
It becomes a museum, so to speak, looking back on how it used to be as opposed to looking forwards. There was a great, there was a great revival that took part in the early portion of the 20th century. It spread throughout the nation of Wales. And it was reported because lives were being changed that there were bars and taverns that actually went out of business for lack of customers. The community was changed. The economy was changed. What happened in that particular culture is that the policemen who would normally stand on the, the, the corners watching and guarding people from crime actually began to, to, to form singing quartets where they stood on the corners and they went to, to churches and they sang together. Why? Because the jails were practically empty. Crime was down. Everything was changing. Why? Because the gospel was set loose in the lives of individuals. And when it's set loose in the lives of individuals, it's set loose in the entire community. We see this take place in our text this morning, which is, as I was studying, as I was reading, I'm like, how do we deal with this in light of today? It makes perfect sense. We are on a collision course with our culture. And we're called to change it, and we can through the power of the Word of God in the presence of the Spirit of God. Listen to the text. Acts chapter 19. We'll pick it up in verse 23. I'm going to have to read portions of it just for the sake of time. Try to follow the narrative. I want you to pay particular attention when we get to verse 26. And we'll see everything compacted, compiled into that verse. And we'll, Lord willing, unpackage that along the way. <clears throat> Here it is. Verse 23. About that time. There was no little disturbance concerning the way, capital W. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, here it is, but in almost all of Asia, This Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who are friends of his, said to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Down to verse 35. When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. 
For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers, blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today. Since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And we had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Two points I want to bring to your attention. The first one is this. The gospel, simply the presence of the gospel causes a riot because there is a message of truth. Here's what's happening. Okay, let's set the scene a little bit. In verses 23 through 27, we see this thing kind of broiling up. It's kind of increasing to a, a, a fevered fervor pitch. They show us that as a result of Paul's ministry, many people are turning from their idols and they're actually begin to focus on the gospel or the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a, there's a spiritual awakening or a revival that takes place. It is so widespread, it actually causes a bit of a business recession among idol makers. It's best summarized with this in verse 23. There arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Now, I don't know if you think of it or not, but that term, the way, is descriptive of Acts chapter 9, when Paul, at the point of his conversion, okay, he was going to seek men and women of the way to have them arrested and eventually just extinguished. So this term is what? Those who are following the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this noise that is beginning to take place really has a central figure, an individual, which is generally the case. There's going to be one person who's the loudmouth, and it's this man, Demetrius. He's a silversmith. He's he's perhaps head of the silversmith guild. You could think of him today if we have unions. He's the union leader for those individuals who made all the little silver shrines, or basically their little souvenirs as people went into the city of Ephesus to worship this goddess Artemis or Diana, there were little figurines that they would take home with them as a reminder that we had been here, and they would place them or they'd put them up in their house. They would literally worship this idol. Demetrius was head of the silver guild who was actually making these. Now, what's interesting is that there's a little bit of background on this goddess, Artemis, as I said, known as Diana. She's the goddess of the hunt, which I think is rather interesting, knowing that tomorrow's the first day of hunting season. I thought you hunters would like that. The goddess of, of wild animals. She's the goddess of the wilderness. She's the goddess of fertility. <clears throat> the goddess who was a daughter of Zeus and his wife, Leto, and she is also the twin sister of Apollo. Those of you who are familiar with some of the Greek gods and goddesses, interesting to note, according to legend, that after she was born, she actually helped deliver her twin brother, Apollo. Yeah, right. Interesting, in all of the research about this one, Artemis, Every single time I read a word, it was always this. She was the goddess of the hunt. She was the daughter of. She was the sister to. Everything, why, is past tense. Because, here it is, 
She is no longer. I want you to think about that. I love the way that Warren Wearsby in his commentary writes it like this. He describes Ephesus is gone. And so is the worldwide worship of Diana of the Ephesians. The city is gone. The temple is gone. The silversmith's guild is gone. He continues, Ephesus is a place that's visited primarily by archaeologists and people in Holy Land tours. Yet the gospel of God's grace and the church of Jesus Christ are still here. Interesting to think. What is, what is Paul supposedly guilty of doing? What is Paul guilty of saying the same thing, Lord willing, that you and I are guilty of saying? Here it is. What? In almost all of Asia, Paul has persuaded, you and I are to persuade people to turn away a great many saying what? That gods made with hands are not Gods. Now, perhaps you would say, well, there's not many people that are bowing between or bowing before a little silver image of Artemis today. No, but they are what? As you see them tearing out at five o'clock in the afternoon now on Thanksgiving Day to get the next what? New item. They're doing exactly the same thing. They are bowing down before it. We knew this Demetrius, what, is not pleased He's not happy with this. Basically, it comes down to three major points. He says, what? You know that we make our money with these silver idol products. He gathers a crowd and he says, you know what we're doing. He also says, what? You know that there's this one person, his name is Paul. He's persuading people to turn away. When the truth of the matter is, and I put this actually in your uh, bulletin insert, but turn with me back to the book of Isaiah. We need to be reminded of this. We need to be reminded to the truth of all of Scripture. In Isaiah chapter 46, <clears throat> look at these verses. Actually, in response to some of the idol worship that was going on thousands of years earlier in the Babylonian kingdom. Isaiah 46 in verse 5. <clears throat> Speaking of the one true God. He says, to whom will you liken me? To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god, small or lowercase g. Then they fell down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders and they carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there and it cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. And then look at this truth in verse 8 that we need to hold before us every single day as we move and collide with our culture. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like Me. Hold on to that reminder. Hold on to the truth that people are spending time, just like in the city of Ephesus, wasting time, wasting money on that which is of 
no eternal value and no eternal relevance. God says you put it on a shelf and it stays there. It doesn't move. It doesn't answer. It doesn't help. It doesn't heal. There is one God and there is none other. Artemis is furious. Demetrius, excuse me, is furious that he, in a sense, through this pseudo idea of, of having a pretense of, of, of reverence toward this goddess, it's really about what? It's really about the fact that we're losing money on this. You know our trade is crumbling, he says. You know that our main claim to fame is the temple of Diana. And literally, he describes the temple is falling apart. And there's a serious problem here. Be reminded of the fact that wherever there is the presence of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is always going to collide. It is always going to come headlong into a collision course with any superstitious money-making schemes. Remember Jesus? Remember when he came into uh, uh, Jerusalem? Remember he went to the temple to worship? And what's happening? There's people there that are selling things. They're trying to make profit for themselves. Jesus. And, and we think about what? There's anger. There's righteous anger, righteous indignation. He literally he turns over the tables. He takes a rope and he whips. He says, you will not turn my father's house into a den of thieves. Paul's doing the same thing right here. In a sense, what? He is coming headlong into a corrupt culture and saying, you're missing out. I think years later, I think of Martin Luther, even with the Reformation in the 1500s in Germany, what does he do? He rails against the Catholic Church, selling indulgences, gaining profit, monetary benefits. Through just false doctrine. Every single time we speak the truth of the gospel, it's going to come face to face on a collision course with any superstitious money-making schemes. We have to have every single moment the words of the Lord Jesus Christ whispering in our ear, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his own soul? We have to keep that Back to this picture, back to this riot. We see things are just getting louder. They're getting more frenzied and worked up and out of hand. In verse 28, it's described what? They are enraged. Actually, they're actually working up into such a, a, a fevered pitch that they're furious. They're crying out. There's anger, but there's also this sense of confusion. It says in verse 29, so the city was filled with confusion. As a matter of fact, it drew such a crowd in verse 32, it describes, which is very similar to what people are doing today. Most of them did not even know why they had come together. (laughs) Think about that. There's just a big party. There's just a big old loud mosh pit of people. And we're upset. We're really, really upset. We don't really know what we're upset about. We're just upset. Literally, it describes it like this. A very perplexing, confounding, confusing scene of disorder. But very reminiscent of how our culture works today. Ben Franklin said it like this, a mob was a monster with heads enough but no brains. And how sad it is that there can be, what, there can be a mass of people. Much of our culture that, what, is influenced in a sense goes flowing along that are misled by a few loud manipulators. 
not only do we see some anger here and confusion here, but there's prejudice. We didn't have to take the time to, to read. There's one Jewish man, Alexander, who steps in to quiet it. A Jewish man, a monotheist in the midst of a polytheistic culture. And it just gets worse as a result of that. Very reflective of today, chanting and shouting and picketing and pushing one another, anything up into a frenzied mess. And then there's this response. Our flesh, the challenge is for us, what? Not to get angry with this. And that's challenging for us. When we, when we read about, when we see what takes place in our culture, it's very easy for us to just get furious with it. It's not our place to get upset, but we are to speak into it with clarity and conviction. And most importantly, we speak into the entire situation of our culture with love. Our second point, the gospel actually calms a riot with a message of love. We are always to be speaking and living in such a way that they give us nothing to which they can hold against us. My dad said, you never give them rocks to throw at you. You never give them a rope to hang you with. You live your life in such a way that is above reproach. Here we go in verse 35. How do they handle the situation? A, a, A town clerk comes in. A town clerk would be the equivalent today of what we could probably say the mayor. He makes this statement again, revealing his own lostness, his own heart. But he gives an interesting testimony about the believers, about true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says in verse 35, when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, who here does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis? He begins by giving a defense and a description of this city of Ephesus being secure in its idol worship. Don't worry. We know who we are. We are followers of the goddess Artemis. However, in doing this, he gives a very clear indication that the Christians have done absolutely nothing to instigate and sometimes we have to, to refrain or restrain ourselves because we want to be so vocal, we want to push forward. Look at the response here. It says, you brought these men, this is Gaius and, and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's traveling companions, and it says that they were neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Now again, we say, well, wait a minute, what did they do here? How did they respond? Big picture, we know that this whole scene is trouble for the mayor, the city clerk. The Roman Empire is all about order. If this word gets out that there's a mob or a riot scene, it's going to be his head or his job. And so with this, he needs to quiet him down. And he says the only way to quiet him down is focus on where the riot is centered, on these individuals, these people of the way. In verse 40, he says what? There is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. You know, if you think about it, with all the frenzy and all the fray that's going on, why are we here? You're upset with these people. Well, what? They have done nothing, in a sense, to add to it, other than their spoken words. What's odd here is that the whole riot just kind of quiets and fizzles, and everybody just goes home. So what's the purpose here? What's the lesson? Why are we told this story? This is perfectly description. It teaches us. It tells us why. 
clearly it teaches and tells us that there's this one individual who makes no no attempt to identify himself with the gospel and still he acknowledges what the character and the conduct of true followers of Jesus Christ he's a lost man he is blinded and he teaches about the the the, the admirable lives and the fact that these people live in such a way that they are worthy of our respect The believers spoke a message of truth. Everyone knew what they believed, and yet they did it in such a way that did not add fire to the flames, add add fuel to the flames. They did it in such a way to communicate what? We still care for you as people. Hard to do, hard balance to, to, to make, but they did it. I think it's interesting that it's this exact church In Ephesians, Paul writes this letter to this church. And what does he say by way of an entire approach of how we are to do ministry and how we're to live life in a culture that we are on a collision course with? In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15, it says what? Speaking the truth. We we speak the truth of the gospel in love. It's this group of people that Paul says, this is what you're to do. This is what you are doing. Praise God for that. We, we look at these, this, this city. God used the wrath of this one man, the anger and all of the ugliness, ultimately for God's name to be glorified and praise of God still to be there. So it's a great reminder of how we go out of this place. How we, in a sense, speak truth, we, we need to be clear as far as what the message of the gospel is, and we do it in such a way. We do it in such a way as to communicate unconditional love. I thought about it in closing. What is, in, in, in this particular setting, very challenging? What is the most difficult situation that you face personally on how you're going to or or? Or, or the means you're going to speak truth into it. People that are antagonistic towards you. People that make fun of you. People that would be um, disrespectful to the name of the Lord. To, to the fact that oh, you're believing something that is so out of date or so ancient or so old. You have to get with it. Whatever the most difficult situation is, you allow at this moment the Holy Spirit to speak to you to say, Lord, help me to speak into that, but do it in such a way that actually draws the character and conduct out of you as one that is a clear follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. The collision course that the church is on, that the gospel is on with this world, we understand this lives and endures forever. This is where we focus. This is where we claim our authority and this is where we ultimately claim that there is God's perfect will to be accomplished when we follow him and follow him alone. Good reminder for us, even from a riot situation from the book of Acts in chapter 19. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you, Lord, for this narrative from Scripture that in many respects we look at and we say how or why. God, we thank you that it teaches us, it really tells us how we are to behave. That we live in a world that is really in complete contradiction to the truth of the gospel. God, we ask that we would trust you and that we would lean upon you, we would rely upon you to speak into it in such a way that shows love for those that are lost. 
Help us, Lord, to trust you, to be faithful, to transform this community through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Just stand with us, please, as we close.